everybody, and welcome to the Death by Adaptation podcast, Clapper's own book club. We discuss books, classic, newer ones, and we talk about the movie adaptations that have been made. And today I'm joined by the lovely Yuan Gledo. How are you doing, Yuan? I'm doing all right, thanks. How are you? I'm, 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 I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about two, two very different books and two very different movies, um, because today we're talking about American Psycho and Silence. And it's, a, it's an interesting double feature. Um, both comment on society in different ways, in different time periods. It's a combo that happened completely randomly, but it's, it's going to be fun to talk about them. In hindsight, we should have paired the books with things that made sense rather than just diving in, because I know what next month is, and that's quite the pairing. <laughs> it's, it's only interesting pairings on this podcast. Um, but we'll, we'll get there. Maybe at the end of this conversation, you know, our, our opinion can change. Maybe we'll come back and be like, you know what? Actually, there are many similarities between Patrick <laughs> Bateman and two Jesuit priests. But anyway, speaking of Bateman, let's talk about American Psycho. Hey, yes, Alan? Why are the copies of the style section all over the place? Do you, do you have a dog? A little chow or something? <laughs> No, Helen. Is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. In 87, Huey released this for their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square. A song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics. But they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends. It's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul! Yuan, why don't you introduce us to, to the so, book? Yeah, so for those that don't know, I, th- I think, to, to be fair, I think just, just as a side point already before I even start, I think more people are aware of sort of the film and the adaptation than they are of the book. Now, that's not because one is more popular than the other, but that's because of Christian Bale, who we'll get to later. For those that don't know, American Psycho is the story of Patrick Bateman. He's a Wall Street banker. He's a very egalitarian person. He works on Wall Street. He's living the high life. He has the flash apartment, the nice car, the beautiful apartment. He's got lovely clothes and he's also a psychopath murderer. That's sort of just shoehorned in at the end there. Um, what Brett Easton Ellis was writing here was sort of a critique of Wall Street, how people manage the stress of working there while sort of being just horrible human beings. Um, I think it's a marvellous book. I'm sure we'll dive into that soon. Um, on the flip side of that, the adaptation which came i believe nine years after the release of the book which was in 1991 mired in controversy because of its attitude towards women and also because of its violent tendencies that exact controversy was adapted by mary harron to the screen with christian bale in 2000 and willem dafoe as well it's it, it takes some similarities with the message and the meaning of brett, brett easton ellis's novel uh, at the same time, it does divert a little bit. It cuts a lot of the um, culturally sort of, not sensitive, but the culturally adaptable moments. You know, there's no 80s jargon really found in the American Psycho adaptation, but that's more of a uh, an iconography thing rather than a, an artistic choice, I believe. But I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting reading the book and re-watching the film because... 
American Psycho, you 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 hit it right in the head. It's it's super super popular. I would say it's almost like in the top ten film bro one hundred one classics. Yeah, which is a shame because <laughs> I think it's a marvelous film. I think it's phenomenal. It's it's ah oh, it's so good. It's so so good. And actually, when when did you first watch the film? I'm curious about that. I so oh god, we're going back like five years now where I first started doing a media degree for my A-levels, which is like the one thing after GCSEs. And I mm. remember like the, the the four films that got me into actually wanting to be a film reviewer were Reservoir Dogs, Grand Budapest Hotel, The Imitation Game, and American Psycho. Because I'd watched those four first because my uh, teacher had given me a big list of films that I should check out. And American okay. Psycho was like fourth on the list. So I watched it and I thought, that's pretty good. So it wasn't until years and years later, like I'm talking about the start of this year that I actually revisited it. And I thought that's incredible. I need to get my hands on the book. I've started reading again. I should read the book. And from there, it's just been an incredible experience. I never thought a piece of art that I sort of initially thought that was pretty good. There's nothing more to think of with that. Could turn into something that I think is a phenomenal rendition of sort of 80s culture in America. Yeah, it's... I, I think the first time I watched the film, I must have been like fourteen. I thought you were gonna say four there. Four, <laughs> five. I, I watched Kill Bill when I was five. Oh boy, that must have been. I don't think experience. I got much of it. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm, to be honest, my parents have always been relatively laxed when it comes to movies. The only one, like as a category in itself, was just horror. Horror is a massive yeah. like X. But then the beauty of, you know, middle school, at the end of middle school, I got a very, very small laptop because we needed to do like, you know, Word and Excel. Like you have to create the documents. You need your own computer, like super cheap. And that's when I discovered the beauty of torrents, thanks to my to my um, uh, classmates back then. And, and I got lost um, in unhealthy ways even sometimes. I remember like, for some reason, this is a small tangent, but whatever, for, for some reason, Forbidden movies were like Meet the Spartans and Epic Movie. So watching yes, those yeah. felt like you were breaking the laws. Like, oh, oh shit, I'm watching Meet the Spartans. But and for some thing, reason, like, yeah. they treat them as pornography almost. Whenever <laughs> it comes up, oh, you used to watch those movies. I didn't approve. <laughs> it's because of the whole post-Watershed appeal. I remember there was a channel mm. called E4. I have no idea if it's still on. It was like a, an off-brand of Channel 4. And they would show sitcoms until 9 p.m., and then after 9pm, they would always show two movies. And the first movie would always kind of be like a little bit of a, an American comedy, like a 12. And then after that, it was something like Meet the Spartans, epic movie that would take you into like the early hours of the morning. And I remember when I was like 12 or 13, I would sit and wait up for these films. In hindsight, I have no idea why they're awful films. But, <laughs> but it was just the, the fact that we had been told we weren't allowed to watch them. And I imagine American Cycle would have been one of those films had we been aware of it in those yes. early days. I, I do believe the, the thing that attracted me to it was a, a bit of just the cultural zeitgeist. It's just part of it. It's uber popular even. But yeah. it was the Christian Bale connection because I, I just finished watching the Dark Knight trilogy, I think. No way. So it was earlier. Yes, we're talking about like 2011, 2012 when I first watched this, which is a while ago. And I must have seen it like six or seven times. And it's definitely one of those movies that grew on me. Like, when you're watching it as a 14-year-old, the first thing is, like, this is so cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen to the soundtrack. <laughs> so cool. Oh, my God. So funny. I, I, the soundtrack is marvelous. And it's it's not just because I have some sort of, like, 
deep love for 80s music like Genesis mm. and Phil Collins and Talking Heads and Huey Lewis, but it was also, you know, when you hear Hip to be Square and then you hear the name Huey Lewis, I imagine a lot of people in their childhood had seen Back to the Future with Power of Love. Yes. And to, and to associate Huey Lewis with kind of like just a, a jovial children's film about going back in time to get your parents together in some freak incest accident, compared to hearing him as Patrick Bateman slams an axe into the head of Jared Leto. That contrast is so thick and fast, but it's the connection of Huey Lewis there that's like, oh, wow, that's he's another art that I've seen. And then you make that connection. It's it's like you said about Christian Bale. On, on the back end of the Dark Knight trilogy, people are going back to watch this. They're also doing the same for Willem Dafoe. They're also doing the same mm. for Jared Leto. Everybody in that film went on to have a great career trajectory. Mm. So to see them in the sort of this early form is fascinating. Yeah, and, and, and speaking of the, of the Huey Lewis scene, which is a classic, an absolute classic in the film, um, it's 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 the way you were describing it right now. It kind of reminded me of the of the Clockwork Orange singing in the rain scene. How it kind yes. of changes your perception of of a song, of something famous like a band, a singer, and it just it's it's changed forever. You're associating it with the more disturbing visuals rather than the original intent, which was more fun and upbeat. Um, and, and this whole obsession of Patrick Bateman with, with music is present both in the film and in the novel. Yeah. And I will say just straight out, the novel is definitely a grower for me. Because when he finished yeah. reading it, I was not... I, I wouldn't say that I wasn't a fan of it. I didn't enjoy my time reading it. But it's been over a month now since I finished reading it. And I'm still thinking about it, which is always a good sign. And it's it's just just thinking back on, on, on some sequences on, on the on the way it's constructed, it's it's kind of brilliant in how dull it is in certain parts because you're you're seeing well, both the film and the book are in first person for most of the time yeah. because you're seeing everything from the eyes of Patrick Bateman and in the book is just describing kind of stream of consciousness everything in my daily activity and I'm going with my friends and we're talking in the car and it's just so boring. <laughs> And then it gets to a point where, like, oh, that's the point. The way yeah. he's describing just the mundanity of his life is how he's also describing horrible acts of violence that he keeps that he keeps just enacting in worse and worse ways against his victims, just to get a bit of a thrill of feeling alive. And he never really reaches that point. And that's when it clicked for me. But it was after actually having read the book. Yeah. I'm just kind of like, that's that's kind of the hidden genius of this. Yeah, it's it's a big risk to take to make your main protagonist intentionally quite, you know, redundant, quite boring. He talks about suits. He, there's whole chapters dedicated just to him describing what he thinks of like Genesis or Whitney Houston, and I think that's to the benefit of the whole who the character is. He's he is just a very boring person, and then you hear him just say something out of the blue to somebody that didn't hear him, and then they just don't acknowledge it. I think it's like he, that's when the hyper violence comes in. He says something like he's gonna skin someone or something horrible equally is just perverse and disgusting as that when that comes through it's it's met with the same response as his ramblings on what tied away with a certain color of trousers and i think that's it's such a gamble and i really like how it's done i think the 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 real risk that he runs is that people are just going to switch off and, and it's not going to work it did, I had the same issues with you where it was sort of the first hundred pages I was really gripped. I was like, I'm interested to see what's happening. He's describing suits and restaurants and it's, and then you get about 200 more pages in 
and he's doing that same over and over again but obviously he's trying to sprinkle in the, the subplot with the uh the prostitutes and then he does another mm-hmm. subplot where he's losing out on accounts and so on and so forth but at the core of it all is still that sort of intense boredom that intentional boredom of this is a guy just going through the motions of life and it's really just not working out for him which is i assume why he's sort of detracting into the state of paranoid need to kill people but yeah i think the gamble pays off in the end like you said it's 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 one of those books that i'm still thinking about after reading it and it's 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 nice to have a book like that and i think especially one that works hand in hand with the film mm-hmm. because the the film isn't identical it doesn't talk about the same merits mainly mainly sort of 80s related incidents like the AIDS epidemics mentioned in the book I think it's pretty much absent in the film yeah. that's not a, a fear of the subject matter that's just a contemporary blemish that's just to move people into the 21st century yeah even the discussions that he has with his co-workers and you always kind of ignore them or really talk about them and it's it's kind of fun how, how Bateman is often trying to be kind of like a hero of sorts like defending some social issues and look how how cultured I am and I'm always speaking very good manner the way and just you know these are the things and and we have to be better people and just just bullshit things because then in in reality it's just a horrible shell of a human being exactly yeah and it's 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 interesting because both the book and the film were perceived as dangerous in a way kind of similar to how people say Joker is dangerous or other movies like uh, Fight Club or whatever are dangerous and personally I <laughs> well for those well even more for Joker I've, I've talked to people who, who have some interesting thoughts about the film that made me cringe a little bit um, but but for American Psycho I, you'd be shocked by the amount of people that I know that really do kind of idolize this lifestyle they never really connect with the more disturbing like going beyond the simple is a murdering psychopath probably some some ambiguity but we'll talk about that um but it's just the fact that like it's the book is unquestionably condemning him because of how slow it moves because of how everything is described it's hard to really get into his mindset in an empathetic or even just engaging way meanwhile in the film a lot of people see him as some sort of anti-hero because it's just us oh, this 80s fuel soundtrack and it's just everything's moving very fast there's the humor there's the quick cuts it's going from scene to scene dialogue to dialogue in an interesting way and and yes we will take away from it that this is cool <laughs> which is which is disturbing and even recently i posted like on on instagram this story i tend to post like letterbox small reviews on it and they never get like oh i posted a timing young review <laughs> it's like no one cares but then i post american psycho and they got like five or six people some of which i haven't talked to in years like oh i love this film i've seen it like 20 times so cool it's so awesome oh it's such a blast and those are words that I would use to describe it. But even talk to some of those people, I'm afraid that they kind of see it more in a kind of like, yeah, Jordan Belfort in Wolf of Wall Street is actually a great person. I wish yeah, it was him. <laughs> but I think that's the beauty of the film and the book is that that misconception <laughs> can be made so easily. And, and, and it's only until you start discussing it further that you realize that's certainly not ne- neither author or the director of anybody in this film. And it's, I think it's rather telling about the people that idolize 
that sort of anti-hero approach? What because what particular aspect of Patrick Bateman comes across as him being any sort of anti-hero? He doesn't do anything that we could call heroic. He doesn't do anything nice for people. He's very much out for himself. And I think that is the appeal of it, because that Jordan Belfort mentality, as you mentioned, and it's that has a strange appeal for some reason. Um, but I think the, the nice part about this compared to Joker is that that misconception feels intentionally. It feels like something that Brett Easton Ellis and Mary Harron are actively trying to engage with. Mm-hmm. so that they can ridicule it and criticise those who are reflecting on this as something that is positive and engaging. Now, it is engaging, but it's more engaging because we're seeing a man that is living life as he shouldn't. But but like you said, there are a lot of people that are saying this was a blast, not because they understood the social message of it, but because they thought they were having a blast with Patrick Bateman around his luxury apartment. Yeah, which just is, you killing know, Paul Allen with an axe. I mean, I, I, I would not be the first to take an axe to the head of Jared Leto, but I would not be the last. At the same time, we've got to understand that we can't idolise that behaviour, even if it is to Hubie Lewis's classic Fall, which is a mm. genuinely a great album. Yeah, and this even helped introduce me to a lot of different songs. Like, I must have listened to Lady in Red like a hundred times because of this movie. I just said, like, those were the early days of Spotify, just kind of like someone had made the playlist of uh, of... It was a playlist of American Psycho and music inspired from it. <laughs> so they even had songs that weren't in the soundtrack, but in my head, they ended up being part of it because I listened to the Spotify playlist. Oh man, those were the days indeed. I but... think speaking of the music, though, it's when adapting it to film, it's a very fine line to walk because obviously you've got mentions of Genesis and Whitney Houston and mm-hmm. Talking Heads in the book. And I don't think any of those make it into the film. Especially Whitney Houston. Heads. Whitney Houston, yeah, maybe. Yeah. At the end. Talking Heads especially, though, because mm. you have the very obvious avenue of they did a song called Psycho Killer. If that was in the movie, then that sort of removes the whole subtext, it removes the whole social aspect angle of it, it removes everything. So it's... Even when it's mentioned in the book, they don't really go into the details of their songs. They just detail sort of the period of time and their influence on music. And I think that has its benefits because it reflects on the soundtrack in the feature. To, to have mentions of people that are on the soundtrack within the book, it sort of contextualizes a lot about Bateman. And I think that is the, the misconception there of him being an anti-hero is because he shares similar interests to people that are reading into his character. He has the same music taste, certainly not the same restaurant appetite as me, but Save restaurant the, wallet. Oh god. Just 570. Sure, just everyone throwing the cards in. I paid £2.40 for a petrol coffee thing. And I thought I was ripped off. Oh Jesus, so, two pounds. Two pound forty and the Oof. machine spat at me. But I didn't realise as soon as you click the button, the coffee just starts pouring immediately. So I got it all in my hands, I got it on my t-shirt, everything. Mind you that once I do get the cup under, like it was actually perfectly filled, so it must have known it was pouring out of the abyss. Jesus. But that's beside the point. It's sort of the <laughs> the if you can have music and art and accessible notions that Patrick Bateman is interested in that the audience is as well, then that makes a connection between the two. And that's where people start falling into that gap of where the misconception should be that Patrick Bateman is a horrible person. But can we overlook that because he likes Genesis as well as us? 
Yeah, I mean, in little things, like he's talking on the phone to his girlfriend while having porn in the background, or he's, 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 he's working out with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like, that's the perfect movie to watch while you're working out, just keeping it on in the background, people screaming. It's, it's literally fueling him. Um, but not just that, just even like speaking of the music and the thing you were talking about, the taste and everything, just it does also represent how people don't get art sometimes or they think they do but they really don't and that's something that stood out to me having just listened to those songs over and over over the years now even the lyrics are just in, just stuck in my head forever probably um and when he's discussing the songs in the film i never really listened to what he was saying but especially in the hip to be square sequence He's talking about, oh, it's conformity is good, basically. Being yeah. the same person, that's it to be square. It's just, yes, we should all be the same. It's an excellent statement that they're making. It's like, is it? Aren't they making fun of that or satirizing it? And it plays into the whole of the of the story, both the book and the film, which stood out even more this time. And then all it never really connected with it previously. But just the fact that they really are all the same. They're, yeah. they're going to these meeting rooms. And all of the men dress the same, look the same, have the same eyeglasses. They keep mistaking one for another, just constantly like, oh, you're whoever. It's like, yeah, I'm not, but I'll just go with the flow. And that's both in the novel and the film. This constant, like speaking to people who maybe are, maybe aren't the person they're actually talking to, but does it really matter? They're all the same. They're all just one entity wanting to conform. And Patrick Bateman wants to be part of it. That's, I think he says it to this girlfriend as well in the film. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, it's good. Don't worry. It's just, I want to fit in. Yeah. Ooh. And I think that, that that's brought up quite a lot in the book where when, when the character is introduced into the, into the scene, it's not the character or the name we re remember first. It's what they're wearing. Mm. Because we're, we're viewing this from the perspective of Bayman, who's judging these people not on their merits as a person, but as their sort of how much money they've got, how much they spend on their wardrobe, what they wear, how they smell, what they buy at a restaurant. So it, it's it's that materialism that is adapted so well in both pieces because it's like you said there, it's people are mistaken one another for everyone because they all look the same. And it's the, the really telling thing there is that they, they essentially are the same entities. They're, they're just as money hungry as all the other people that they adapt with. The, the issue of conformity for Bateman is that he probably he's trying to but by the sound of it doesn't want to because he's bought out of his mind towards the end of the novel and the end of the book he's he, he's about ready to to just break free from it and I think there's the likability isn't the right word but there is a sense of understanding for it where he's mm. he's really actively trying to be part of this group because he has to be because society and the sort of social norms of it have asked him to do so and obviously he doesn't want to be a part of that by the end of the book and it's you know there are better ways to get out of doing that than to you know go murdering people but it's the actual lashing out and it's the actual like extreme violence that notifies us that he's not actually you know well prepared for this world yeah you you, you can tell that that's that's the only way for him to kind of feel anything both in the book and the film, just this losing grip with reality and, and just murdering people left and right. Um, especially in the book, that's, that's a funny thing because the film is considered very graphic and violent, 
um, it's a type of film that I remember I watched it like the third or fourth time I watched it with my dad and he was rather shocked by it and I still don't think it's particularly graphic I think the I think the implications present in the film are much much worse than anything that's actually depicted in it um, and that's really a personal a more personal thing but, but the book the book goes place the book is, is explicit it's graphic it's it's disgusting to watch to read him describe how he's trying to cook human meat, how he's oh, yeah. removing the eyes and stuff. It's it, it's explicit in a way that's that's needed, and it never feels gratuitous, which is a, which is a line that's just hats off, yeah, absolutely hats off for pulling it off, because it's easily could have been just pulp, absolute pulp, just losing himself in the descriptions. But but again, it's it's all going back to the character. It's it's because it is a character study at the end of the day, and it's just it's 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 horrifying, and it's it's just a boring, boring freaking person, and it's yeah. And uh, Christian Bale as well, I think is is terrific in the film because he manages to bring just this this snarky attitude, kind of like with his fake smiles, uh, just uh, tongue in cheek, constantly looking down at people. And the, the rage and jealousy whenever something happens, it pisses him off. It's delightful. And it's always like, it's, it's one of the most iconic scenes of the film, but when they're, they're exchanging business cards and it's, this, it's literally just a dick measuring contest. It's kind of like, well, look at my car. And just, it, it's, it has the sound in the film of, the, of a sword on sheeting, basically. Kind of like, just opening it up and showing it's like, this is my weapon. It's like, look at the engraving. It's like, it's the same font. There's nothing, it looks the same. <laughs> and they're so obsessed with the little details. And they basically like has an orgasm just looking at Paul Allen's card. It's kind of like, oh, this even has a watermark. <laughs> it's what you say there though about the little details. That's very much what those characters depend on. They're looking for those little details within one another to sort of criticize and condemn. That's the only thing that sets them apart, those tiny little details about like what shade of white they have for their business card or what colour their tie is or how their hair is slicked back or if it isn't. Mm -hmm. Those are the tiny little details that they're trying to sort of chastise one another for because that's all they can really talk about outside of work. Mm -hmm. and and work that they never seem to be doing. Terrible yeah, they, they talk a lot about work and don't do any. They have accounts. It's they like, yeah, that's all, that's, that's all that matters. But I think that's the beauty of it. It's sort of, I feel like that's an intentional choice, not to show them actually working. Because mm -hmm. for all Bateman sits in his office, most of it is talking to his secretary or talking to Kimball. Yeah. And to be fair, I, I didn't realize Kimball had such little presence in the book compared to what he does in the film. It's sort of, it's, it's basically two scenes in the book. Whereas in the film, it feels like his presence is always sort of looming over Bateman. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a different form of tension that's kept throughout the film instead of the book. In the book, it feels more like more like a gradual descent, I'd even say, into madness because you're witnessing so many acts of violence compared to the film. And then you just get lost into those things that, yeah, the detective is doing his own thing, but it doesn't really matter. Meanwhile, in the, in the film, it's something that helps to set a bit more of you know, tension or fear. Will he get caught? Does he want to get caught? He's doing everything in his power to be completely shady. 
constantly and it doesn't help that other people keep misremembering if he was actually there he was like yeah you were there they said you were there at the party it's like oh yeah of course it was at the party because someone just thinks he was there because they all look the same they're all interchangeable it's oh it's it's a horrible reality but it's 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 probably a reality for a lot of people just living like that it probably is it's kind of like i mean no matter how high you go up, how low you go down in employment, it's kind of like their employees, they're all one and the same. They are treat the same as individuals. They're just a group. They're a group of interchangeable people that will come and go. The only difference is that they are living the high life and have standards to sort of, they, they don't have to live up to them, but they're expected of. They're expected to go to all these flat restaurants. They're expected to go to nightclubs and all the sort of stuff that doesn't really appeal to Bateman at the scene. Hmm. Maybe even the drug use is not he engages in it, but not in a at least in the film, not in an overly like I love doing drugs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not like, like he gets a, a kick out of it. It's his desire to conform, but his lack of patience or interest in it is kind of just not there. And and I think the, the beauty of that is that no alternative is given to him. He has no other aspirations beyond fitting in. And because of that, it's kind of hard to feel sorry for him. He's sort of made his bed and now he's got a lie in it. He's got to follow this path because that's the only path available to him. And, and it's it's interesting comparing the, the scene from the book because we, we mentioned it's the book is written by Brett Isamelis and is a man. He's a, he's a white man. Meanwhile, the, the film is directed and, and written by, by Mary Aaron and co-written by Guinevere Turner, who has co-written a bunch of, of, bunch of films with Mary Aaron. And it's it's interesting to think of like we, we mentioned I mentioned the film Bro 101 thing, but American Psycho it's also part of the classic duology of I don't like women directors, but my favorite movies are American Psycho and Point Break. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a classic, but it's it's true. It's easy to forget. It's it's directed by by, by Mary Heron. But looking back at it, especially after having read the novel the female perspective is felt in many ways, especially during the, the prostitution scene, well, prostitution scenes, but like, yeah, the characters of the prostitutes, especially uh, like Christie, so-called Christie, poor Christie. Um, because in, in the novel, they are marginal characters. They don't really have, again, a personality or anything. But in the film, Christie is basically the only character that we follow outside of Bateman. Yeah. In the book, it's always like first person, first person. You get the climax that's that's written more like an action movie where he's being attacked by SWAT and he's just going absolutely insane on a killing rampage that probably never really happened. But in the film, the only sequences where you actually see things from someone else's perspective is with Christie. The first time Bateman approaches her, you're seeing her on the sidewalk and the, this creepy car with a, with a faceless driver just approaching approaching her, you never know who the driver is, you never see them, doesn't matter. Just kind of like, that's, I'm doing my, my job, I'm doing whatever my master tells me to do. And seeing things from, from her perspective, it, I, I think for me, that should be the moment when audiences lose the anti-hero empathy, whatever, like, even if you kind of liked up to a point Bateman, I think the moment is chasing her around completely naked with a chainsaw. She's going through the house of horrors where bodies are lying everywhere and there's blood just around on every wall. I think that's the moment where you kind of draw the line. 
Yeah, which is weird to say. You draw the line after after he's just already killed a bunch of people. It's it's startling that people are gonna see that chainsaw scene and think we all have our vices. That's that's his way of letting off steam, and they'll try and defend that Bateman is sort of this anti-hero worth championing, and he's not. He's he's just a part of the big machine that people come together to you know take on, mm-hmm. and that essentially is the the sort of point of American Psycho. It is a criticism of that mentality that to make it big and to be happy in life is to have you know, flash cars, plenty of places to go for food, and to conform into a essentially a lifestyle that is not tailor made to anyone. Mm-hmm. These people all sound miserable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 that scene is is just, I would say it's the only moment of the film that kind of qualifies as a horror, because this is generally considered a horror film. Even though I would say, just in general, for me, it's a dark comedy really really yeah. dark in places and it loses a bit of the humor the longer it goes on um, understandably so it's kind of needed as well like in those scenes in the in the final christie scene it's there's no humor it's just horror it's just pure terror it's it's the texas chainsaw massacre even it's literally her going around the house finding weird shit and running away screaming while she's being chased by someone with a chainsaw only that she doesn't escape and and it's it's tragic if you, you feel her that you feel the horror of it all it's and it's effective, and it kind of made me makes me wish that Mary Harold made not just more movies, but kind of better movies, because I know generally speaking they're not that well received. The other ones, the only one I've actually seen in full is Charlie Says, which I briefly oh. mentioned last week or last month, sorry, on the on the podcast, and it's unfortunate, but I I really do think this kind of lightning in a bottle for her, just with the cast, everyone helping her out. Um, she did a great job. I mean, we could kind of say the same for Brett Easton Ellis as well. This is kind of his yeah. big known for book. I know he came out, he, he wrote his first book when he was in college, I believe, and that was a critical success. But even there, when I'm explaining it to you, I don't know the name of it. The only one I could name off the top of my head was American Psycho before I knew who it was. And it's, I think, both the director of the film and the writer of the book. This is sort of their high point. This is their peak whether they like it or not. I mean, I know uh, Ellis wrote Luna Park a couple of years later, and that had Patrick Bateman in it, and it had all these different characters, but it was meant as sort of a quasi-satire biography, weird piece that I'm sure has its own satirical notes to it. It's not going to be anything like American Psycho, though, because you can't exactly criticise the same subject twice, yeah. which is why it's all the Patrick Batemans in it. But And I think as far as Ellis goes, I think it might just be sort of the whole controversy that sounded the initial release that sort of damage is unavoidable for a lot of directors and there are very rare occasions where a director can mount that controversy into something presentable as work and it's a shame because the direction in this is fantastic it's really really good it's really well realized she has a real keen eye for sort of how these scenes can be adapted to the to the screen the layout of Bateman's apartment makes sense conceptually for the novel where you know there there are loads and loads of adaptations where sort of you can see that it's the director having their spin on a story and Mm -hmm. Haran does that but she also has a respect for the sort of general scene to be set where the apartments are flash or the office is very grey and monotonous but it has an effect and an impact that helps the story later down the line and that's something her and Ellis do very well across both of these mediums. Yeah. And and speaking of Ellis, just I, I haven't read anything else from his. 
the only other story that they kind of know marginally is the rules of attraction, which a lot of people love. Um, but they really want to, of, of all these films, because it's also written screenplays, I really want to watch The Canyons, directed by Paul Schrader, which is an infamous film. Um, and I'll probably be watching it very soon. So stay tuned on, on the social medias, on the letterbox to read my review, because Schrader is an interesting beast. So I'm, I'm Brit Aston Alice script directed by Schrader must be must be quite something, you know, especially starring Lindsay Lohan and a couple of porn actors like James Dean. Yeah, so it's been over a decade since Ellis last wrote a book. His last one was Imperial Bedrooms, which essentially released to mediocre, mm. acceptable reviews. And as far as Haran goes for her directing, her latest project was The Expecting, which was last year um, it's a queeby film it looks like nobody watched it which is it's, a shame but i suppose that's what happens when you make charlie says yeah which i've also not seen <laughs> but yeah charlie says it's it's not worth it and I, I kind of want to see the, the expecting because i i kind of enjoy the two actors in it but again it's 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 queeby it's queeby still a thing is it still active does it exist are people going to make more movies for Quibi? How did they get Mary Heron? They, they got to send Raimi to make a Quibi film. Now that they think about it. Quib, Quibi is, is a weird experiment that backfired instantly in the span of a year. Or even less. It <laughs> launched in April, shut down in December. That's Jesus. what we like to see. <laughs> That's quite the lifespan. It's a massive success. <laughs> I wonder if those Quibi movies are role. just lost. Are these movies just lost, or you can still access them in some weird way? I Probably think they, they sold the library of films and content they've made, or at least I would hope so. Just give them to Amazon? Yes, it was sold for less than $100 million. Which <laughs> oh, is not oh, good, oh. considering the investment for that company was near enough to $2 billion. But, um... Oof. Good for them. Not for everyone who worked on it. I suppose that's the, the big gamble all creatives must take though is to seize those opportunities and you know it sometimes doesn't work like in the case of you know Mary Harron and Sam Raimi and Queeby but at the same time it's you know at least they've they've done that the, the same could have happened for American Psycho but that just hmm. it released at the right time yeah it did it, 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 it's, it's, it's the turn of the century basically it came out in 91 and it's showing the just how things have changed throughout the past yeah. few decades after the war. Society the, the is different. Of both pieces is that they have a reflective quality to them. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to look back on former generations and criticize them. It's actually getting the why they're being criticized and how is the the interesting key for it. And it, it kind of just it's one of those things that'll work for one person, it won't work for the other. But I think that's the beauty of Ellis's writing in this one. It's it has punchy moments that are going to connect it with the time period it's criticizing. Where on the flip side, Mary Harron doesn't have those yet mixed an equally critical piece of that same generation of people. Yeah. And I think that's the that's the power of the ending, which yeah. we can get into. It's just I, I mentioned Clockwork Orange earlier, and I'm kind of thinking about it again right now, talking about the ending, because it's at least the, the movie Clockwork Orange or the US release of the book, which miss, is missing the last chapter, but 
the, the one of the things that makes those stories, both A Clockwork Orange and American Psycho, very disturbing for people is that there's no release, no catharsis. It doesn't end with the bad guy is in jail. Patrick Bateman has been caught. Everything's going to be all right. You know what? He's a horrible person, misogynist, murderous serial killer. But in the end, justice was served. Bruce's analysis is like, nope. He's just going away scot-free. And you can tell he kind of wishes he got caught because he's feeling guilt, we could even say, or just the weight of every the weight of nothingness, just it's pure depression in a way, because just it's kind of that depressed individual who's feeling absolutely nothing anymore in his life. And in those final moments, he even gets robbed by a taxi driver. And it's like, yeah, but you know, no, nothing's happening to him. Even when he's put in jeopardy, he still gets away from it, doing absolutely nothing. And after the whole, you know, privileged white man thing be became a thing on Twitter over the past one or two years, it's hard not to see that in the ending of both the novel and the film, where it's literally just kind of the embodiment of, I'm a rich white man, I have all the privilege in the world, and you know, I, I can kill dozens of people, and still no one is going to believe me even when I downright say it to my lawyer, who thinks I'm another person, again. It's just, yeah, I think, that, that's yeah. life. It's on top of that, I think of the whole point of both pieces is sort of just bad people get away with bad things. It's sort of yeah. an inevitability that Ellis and Harrod are conscious of. And Bateman embodies that. Now, whether or not he actually committed the murders, that's up for debate. But it's the actual fact that the debate of that doesn't really matter to the ending. At the mm -hmm. end of the day, he's either perceived as getting away with it or is perceived as someone that could get away with it. Either way, the debate is mute because whatever the answer, he could get away with it. Yeah, especially because he's even even speaking of just serial killers in general, he's, he's, he mentions Ed Gein, Ted Bundy, and others throughout the book and the, and the film. And those were like, if you if you go online and, and watch, look at pictures of those men, they look like especially Ed Gein. He's just old, decrepit, weird. He's the kind of person if you saw him at night, you'd cross the street and just never look back. You can see him shouting at you in a bar without ventures that's that's those those men have embodied the type of like you know the dirt even charles manson those just dirty men that you can see being serial killers meanwhile Ellis has created a character that's literally kind of is almost a perfect human being it's just yeah. going to the gym constantly using just 50 different products in the shower just to clean his skin off and whatever else for his face. Just He's just in such a perfect shape, looking really nice, dressing nicely. It's, it's literally the type of person where you say, I never would have thought he was a serial killer. He was such <laughs> a nice boy. Like those type of men. Precisely, um, yeah. But isn't that what, this is going to be a tangent, but isn't that what people said about Ted Bundy? Because he was quite sort of he very charming well. he looked mm -hmm. rather middle class he looked sort of he, he fit the role and the shock came from that his acts of murder were sort of just completely in contrast to his life which was very redundant very mundane very simple but very middle class yeah it's also hard for me to to separate now ted bundy from from zach Efron. <laughs> yes well he she said ted bundy and pictures zach Efron from the first <laughs> He's been ruined now. Damn it, Zach. 
he ruined Ted Bundy's face. Zach Efron, you keep your grubby little paws of Ted Bundy. <laughs> anyway, yeah, American Psycho. What, what a book, what a film. But to speak of something completely different, let's move on to Silence. Don't speak to me. You have no right to speak to me. Oh, I do. Because you were just like me. You see Jesus in Gethsemane and believe your trial is the same as his. Those five in the pit are suffering too, just like Jesus. But they don't have your pride. They would never compare themselves to Jesus. Do you have the right to make them suffer? I heard the cries of suffering in this same cell. And I acted. You excuse yourself! You excuse yourself! That is the spirit of darkness! <laughs> and what would you do for them? Pray? And get what in return? Only more suffering. The suffering only you can end. Whoa. Not God! <laughs> I pray too, Rodriguez. It doesn't help. Go on. Pray. But pray with your eyes open. Silence is originally a 1966 book written by Shusahuendo. Hopefully I haven't butchered the name. He is a very peculiar writer because he's, he's a Japanese Catholic, Christian Catholic, which is a very, very small minority in Japan. And, you know, he studied abroad. He went back to his country. He's written a lot of, a lot of novels, many of, some of which are still haven't been translated in a lot of languages. But what's considered his magnum opus is silence. Story of two Jesuit priests who go on a mission to Japan to retrieve their mentor. Their mentor who in the film is played by good old Liam Neeson, Father Ferreira. And, and this went on their journey. They encounter other... Japanese Christians hiding away because, you know, in these times they were persecuted. We're speaking of the 17th century. Christians were not accepted in Japan after a long period of missionary work. And a lot of the priests had to apostatize or get killed. And it's the, the book is, again, it's been considered the magnum opus of, of Endo. And I haven't been able to read any of his other books because they're nearly impossible to find, at least on other cheap price here in Italy. But Mr. Martin Scorsese loves the book. A lot, a lot, a lot. So much so that he wanted to make the film for decades. I think he's been working it since the 90s, I want to say, maybe even earlier. And he's definitely the man for the job. And this marks a sort of unofficial trilogy of faith that Scorsese made because the first one he did was uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, which for my mind is probably my favorite Martin Scorsese film. I think it's just masterful, especially in a time, and this kind of connects actually with science, but just when it came out, Christian movies, and even to this day, they're always very, very questionable with their morals and ethics uh, um, and portrayals of acceptance and portrayal even of Jesus and God. And Scorsese did another bold choice. But okay, this is the episode of bold choices from, uh, from authors, let's say. <laughs> um, he made the bold choice of showing Christ as a man. It's like, Jesus was a man. And Christians were like, no, he was perfect. Don't touch him. Don't, don't question that he might have, might have enjoyed Mary Magdalene and might have had dreams about her. Don't say that. That's not nice. We want everything to be completely pure and clean. And so he got a lot of flack for that. 
But again, I really love The Last Temptation of Christ. Then he made Kundun about the Dalai Lama, which is another hot topic for China. I think he probably got banned from the country because of making the movie. I know they're very hot about those things. I know even like Brad Pitt, he made seven years in Tibet. And China was like, you're never coming here ever again because we don't like you defending Tibet and the Dalai Lama and all those wonderful people. And lastly, after almost two decades from making Kondun, he made Silence. And, and Silence is unfortunately a very underrated film, a very underse- relatively underseen film, because Scorsese is one of the greatest directors working nowadays. And I remember the trailers for Silence were coming out and everyone was like, yo, new Martin Scorsese films, yay. Like the trailer was intense. It had this strong string soundtrack. And it looked like something that was almost like a thriller. And then the movie came out at a terrible time. <laughs> it was kind of like, I remember it was like late December, early January. It was kind of dumped in theaters. Yeah, there's other, like you had La La Land and Arrival and Moonlight, like all those other bigger movies during award season. They just covered it completely. Um, at the Oscars, it only got up random, I'd even say, nomination for Best Cinematography. Not random because of the quality, but just just out of all, of all the nominations it could have gotten. Um, performances, good old Andrew Garfield got nominated for Axel Ridge, which in my opinion is actually a really good film. <laughs> but when, we're, when you compare Axel Ridge with Silence, you know, it's, it's, it's very different Christian films um, and different portrayals of faith. One is very cheesy, lifetime movie-esque, and the other one is completely earnest. And yes, I just, I love Silence. I love the book because it's, I have a soft spot for epistolary, I think that's the word, right? Epistolary novels are just written in the form of letters and everything is written from a point where the writer has already lived all of those events and is just recounting them either to someone or to themselves in a diary. And it's a great way to get immersed into the mind of uh, Father Rodriguez, who's played by Andrew Garfield in the film. And the book flies. It, it, it's, in, it's a very, very quick read, surprisingly. Um, never too heavy-handed, never boring. And uh, Scorsese pretty much adapted it almost bit for bit, almost scene for scene. There are certain dialogues that are almost taken straight out of the book, which was impressive. And... Yeah, I'm curious to hear what, what you think after my long tangent on <laughs> silence. <laughs> I am, um, yeah, just to reiterate what you said, it's it's a surprisingly short book to read. Um, I think it's only about 260 pages or so, and, and like you said, a lot of that is through letters, through diary entries, and I, I'm a big fan of that because really the only books otherwise that I've read of that have done that are Dracula and Frankenstein. So it was nice to get a film or a book rather that wasn't you know based on horror monsters and was yes. actually you know quite a, a deep sort of meditation on faith and what it means for people and how you know it's it's not as simple as giving it up in the face of danger and it was kind of I think from a personal perspective I'd never really understood that until a few years ago and it's kind of nice to see that reaffirmed in silence where it kind of it makes sense that there is reason behind these people and these priests not giving up their faith Scott, it's 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 an act of blasphemy for them to do that, and it. I think Endo has no difficulty, and neither does Scorsese, in kind of coaxing out a, a a feeling of 
you know, sort of, what's the word for it? A feeling of, um, we, we, we feel bad for them, you know, we can, what's the word for uh, it? Not pity. Um, not pity, no, sort of uh, a, a, a respect almost that. Yeah. Yeah, that'll do. <laughs> But yeah, they, compassion? neither of them have any. Compassion, that's the one, yeah. I, I never give that, that's why I didn't know the word. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's it's very easy to feel compassion both in the piece from Scorsese and in the piece from Silence, and it's more or less the same reason, which is that they both adapt this idea that faith is not something you just give up. And it's, you know, it's it's inherent, but at the same time, you can sort of, you know, from, from me talking there, it makes it sound like you need to have faith in Christ to read the book or watch the film. You don't, it's... You know, beyond that, it's it's a very brutal and cutting understanding of, you know, the occupation of Japan at the time, religious persecution, and that is genuinely terrifying. It's it's horrific, and it was adapted essentially extremely well. And I think the the big benefit that Scorsese has, despite, you know, I think it made $23 million or $40 million budget, which is essentially a, a bomb. But That's at the bomb. same time, it's the casting is... Perfect. Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield and Liam Neeson are phenomenal. And I think they embody sort of the best efforts and the meanings and the prose of Endor spectacularly. I think there's there's very few people that can step a foot wrong mm-hmm. like Scorsese. Scorsese could, could adapt anything and he could do a pretty good job at it. And I think it helps that this is sort of the ending point of his sort of faith trilogy. I've not seen Kundun, but I have seen The Last Temptation of Christ, which is fantastic Mm. and i think comparing the two of those for a moment it's i don't think in silence there is anything controversial but i think that's more because it's an adaptation of something that people can't find offense from yes whereas if you're adapting you know the bible people may take offense to that on the grounds of it's kind of you're interpreting the words of the bible in your own way as an artistic expression i don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that Wait, are you speaking about the Bible, notorious historical book that's 100% factually accurate from page yes. one? Yeah, like <laughs> the, the bit with the ark and then the tree that set on fire. And that's all I remember because I had like, uh, I wasn't much of a reader as a kid, so I had like the, the picture version of the Bible. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So much easier. Um, I will never forget one of my professors, small thing, which was one of my professors in high school was like, do you guys want to read a horribly violent graphic book that has a lot of nudity as well? It's like, yeah, what is it, prof? Read the Bible. <laughs> that shit is intense. It's the goriest book I've ever read. It's <laughs> like, oh, you know, there's, there's beheadings, there's people who get shot with arrows, there's, there's flailing. There's some there's some cross crucifixions. Game of Thrones has that. Yeah. Game of Thrones is a new Bible. And that has Peter Dinklage, so I know which one I'm watching. I, do, no, I, I watch a remake of the Bible with Peter <laughs> Dinklage as Jesus. Well, speaking of which, he has actually played Jesus in uh, The Three Christs. Oh, right. She watched recently. Oh, it was awful. A high recommendation from, from you. It, it is just a, a, a stunt campaign for him to have a footnote on his CV to say, I can play Jesus if you want me to, which is awful. Everybody could grow a goatee if they really tried. That's all it takes these days. Commitment. But <laughs> beyond that, I think it's kind of just a... 
I don't know. I, I don't think there's anything inherently offensive about Silence's adaptation, nor do I think there's anything offensive about Silence the book because it does mm. such a, a good job of showing this damning story of people being persecuted for what they believe in, which is just terrifying. It's it's a you know it it, it it is really really horrible to think that this did happen, and it you know I I I, I haven't read much of on the history of it, but it, by from what I've read and what I've from from the stuff I've read in silence as well, it's mortifying. It's it's absolutely dreadful. It was borderline a genocide of of, of of Christian Japanese, Catholic Japanese, whatever you want to call them. Um, it's 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 truly horrible. But so speaking of just contours, I I wonder if if Scorsese Scorsese made this this film earlier, would it have garnered controversy? I don't know. But I think something that's that's interesting. Um, actually, before we go on, so you, would you consider yourself like a man a man of faith, or did you like grow you know, up in I a very a, um, Catholic I, Christian? No, not Catholic actually necessarily. No, you know like, what? I went to Catholic school. Oh, okay. I went to Catholic primary school. I went to Catholic secondary school. I went to Catholic sixth form college. Oh, wow. And I never took any interest in it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until like a year ago, for my own selfish reasons of if there is the chance I die, if I die, there better be something afterwards. That terrifies me. And it's just, I had a whole existential crisis about whether or not there was actually anything after death. And that scared me senseless to the point where I was like, maybe, maybe believing in God's not such a bad idea. Yeah. So it's out of, it's out of a, a brutal selfishness that I'm faithful. <laughs> it's, 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 it's something comfortable. That's like, well, if I fall, there's a mattress there that's going to catch me. That's, that's always how I've seen it. So it's, it's a comforting it, thought to have. It's it's of no consequence to believe mm-hmm. in it because if it isn't real, then I'll be dead anyways, and I won't know. Yeah. But if it is real, I'd rather have that in my back pocket. You know, if I get to the pearly gates and they say, "Ah, we, we we've heard about you, you prick," that's selfish for you. It's like, ah, well, I hold my hands up there. I love that you just said that because it's almost quote for quote a conversation we had uh, in uni during, I don't remember even which like philosophical class that we had, philosophy class, because we were talking about like believing in, in religion and the professor ultimately said it's best to believe and just don't care because well, if, yeah. if, if, if you believe it's like it's a win-win, just like you said, it's like well, if it is there, good. If it's not there, eh, you tried. <laughs> You're not I, losing much. Yeah, I, I believe in God. I don't, I don't practice. I don't pray or anything because I, I wouldn't know what to say. Thank you for giving me the caramac to say, God. I was quite hungry, and He nourished that. That's not, you know. But at the same time, it's 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 a comfort, and I think reading Silence sort of reaffirmed that mm-hmm. for me a little bit. Where it is sort of a people people can't just give that up. It's not something they can give up very easily. Yes. I don't think I could give it up easily, and I'm not being persecuted by anyone yet. Yet. <laughs> There's always the chance. You never, you never know. know. Best um, to be prepared. Yeah. No, I, 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 I've always, I grew up uh, a Catholic in the sense that just literally every Sunday was going to to Sunday school, I think is the name in English. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, where we discuss the Bible and we watch movies and other things, and then we go to church for Mass. And I think I've, I went to mass literally every Sunday till I was 19 or 20. 
um, but they've had a rocky relationship, not so much with religion as a whole, but just religion, religion as the just the, the place, the people, the community of just uh, you know uh, the other believers and the people that go to church with you and are in the groups, because it's it's always been in my experience at least it's cesspool of just hypocrisy from beginning to end. Yeah. Um, people who contradict each other just like oh you can't I remember like the, the funniest people are always you know the ones who are ready to um, you know complain about someone not going to church every Sunday and then they clearly have premarital sex with their boyfriends of three plus years it's kind of like yeah. well you know if, if you're such a, an annoying bitch about a kid not missing one Sunday there's there's other things we can look at if you want to complain uh, this will start pointing fingers because uh, as the good Jesus said whoever is without sin cast the first stone it's it's, it's probably my favorite quote of his because Jesus was had so many good quotes like man if you were a copywriter um, <laughs> But that no, was a honestly, very specific <laughs> example to give. I don't know, but but still, it's I've I've seen those things, and they and those are the elements that ultimately made me go like, you know what? I'm I'm over eighteen now. I just don't care anymore. Yeah. Believing is one thing; actually practicing it is another. I think but... that's the thing. It's kind of if I were to practice it, I wouldn't want to practice it in a public place. Yeah, not, not because or I'm be the people I'd be ashamed afterwards. or embarrassed, but because. I don't want to have to talk to other people. At the very best of times, I like to do things independent of anyone. You know, the, yeah. the, the beautiful thing about the cinema and the pandemic is that I can go by myself and people don't think that's weird. Whereas before the pandemic, when I would go and see, I remember this because I went to see Will Ferrell's Downhill. And I went to see that by myself. And everybody else in there was at least sat next to someone. And I had a whole row to myself. And I nice. felt strange. But I don't mind doing things like that. I would rather do something by myself than with a group. In, I'd probably take away from it. Including faith-based events such as church or egg and spoon races or whatever they do. <laughs> it's been a while since I've practiced. I think the last time I went into a church was like... Uh, yes, I remember I went to a christening and the priest genuinely had the same haircut and glasses as Austin Powers. So it made it very difficult to get through the service. One of the more enjoyable ones, probably. <laughs> no, because it was like he didn't sound much like him. He did have like little hints of it, and he dipped the baby into the water to baptize, and he picked it up and went, "I never has in the eyes of God, baby." <laughs> yeah, stuff like that, and it was like I'm just waiting for this explosion of like Austin Powers, like groovy baby. Yeah, it's like no, please don't. That's one of the four impressions I can do. I'm waiting for Uncut Gems to have an Arnold Schwarzenegger episode, mm. because I can do an Arnie. Not very well, but I can do one. I think everyone can do an Arnie. Oh yes, oh yes. I've, I've, I've practiced enough on that front. We could have a, <laughs> a, an Arnold show up. <laughs> I think the good, good Jakob Flash um, host of Uncut Gems podcast, the other Clapper podcast, um, I think he can do a mean Arnold, so that's going to be fun. <laughs> We're going to have to get, like, Total Recall on there or something. Commando, I'd do. Oh, yes. There's so many good quotes in Commando. Imagine, if, imagine si the... silence, but, but the interpreter is played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think there's, <laughs> I think there's a lot of films and 
novels that could be adapted better if Arnold Schwarzenegger was the star. Like the Bible. <laughs> like the Bible. <laughs> I'm on the cross. Oh, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He just kind of like gets out of the cross. Oh, Jesus. I'm going to go the most, now. The most accurate depiction of the Bible thus far has been Life of Brian. <laughs> yes. And that's With the best ending as well. No, but genuinely, that's mainly because they actually show the Sermon of the Mount and they actually have quotes of the scripture that Jesus gave at the Sermon of the Mount. And that's the pan of the camera out. And we turn to Brian, it's kind of just like a human reaction to not being able to hear. And the actual surrounding areas and locations and the settings and the scenes, they're actually fairly accurate to the time. Yeah. Which is baffling. And I think the same, just to careen us back on road <laughs> after the Austin Powers priest impression. Um, I think that's a great benefit that Scorsese has here. He's, you can tell that he is using this budget to, to the absolute maximum he possibly can. The, the film looks incredible. It's absolutely mm. extraordinary. And I'm not one of those people, well, actually, up until recently, I wasn't sort of blown away by landscapes and sort of the beauty of nature. I didn't buy into that bollocks. I didn't believe that nature could be nice. I've been to see waterfalls. I've seen the ocean. I have hit a seal with a lifeboat. I've done everything Yay. God has asked of me. <laughs> I, it wasn't until like watching Silence, and I think it was, this won't make much sense to those who haven't listened to Uncle Chems, but it was when I was looking for the chickens in the forest. Oh, yes. It, it was actually taking in the surroundings and even just like a little path near a road. It was kind of slightly covered by trees. It looked very nice. So I thought, well, yeah, that is nice. And then you see Scorsese's film where like the ocean is crashing against these rocks and there's two crucifixes in the ocean. It's like, that is a horrible scene to depict, but it looks so beautiful. It mm -hmm. looks magnificent. And I think that's the, the main benefit of Silence as a film. It's that it has these beautiful scenes and nature is so vibrant and welcoming. But at the same time, the, the actual social structure of that place at the time was quite the opposite there was no acceptance of catholicism in japan at the time which is you know it, it's like you said it's it, there's a very small minority of japanese is it christians or catholics uh, i think christians in general i think catholics are even a smaller minority yeah um, but yeah it's sort of it's rather telling as to why reading this piece and then watching the movie as well it's terrifying yeah and and that's that's the probably the only big difference is just in style between the novel and the film because we mentioned the novel is epistolary, but while the film is primarily purely visual, um, soundtrack that's that's again another big difference if you like if you compare the trailer to the actual movie the trailer is exciting high octane scatting back and forth and and then you watch the movie there's no no music just zero music I think there's even composers listed I don't know why. I don't think even the end credits of music. Maybe there was music in the background in a couple moments in the city. Maybe someone was playing a banjo or something. I don't know. <laughs> Just deliverance in, in silence. <laughs> but but other than that, it's it's primarily just like you mentioned, those vistas, those wide shots, or intense, super intense close-ups of Andrew Garfield's face and the other uh, on the other Japanese Christians. And it's it's interesting because. Scorsese is, is a well-known massive cinephile and a, a, an interesting comparison. I don't know if you've actually seen the film that could be made is with The Silence by, which is not the bat, vampire, whatever hell Netflix movie, which came out a couple of years ago. 
Don't Stanley Tucci. Oh. Stanley Tucci. It's not the Stanley Tucci film. It's it's the Ingmar Bergman film, The oh. Silence, from 1963, which coincidentally is also the final chapter in an unofficial faith trilogy, which had uh, Through a Glass Darkly and Oh, uh, Winter Light, of course. Oh. Unofficially remade as first reformed. Whatever Paul Schrader says, don't trust him. <laughs> but the final f- film in the trilogy is The Silence. And it's interesting to compare the two types of silence present in both, both in terms of the trilogy as a whole and in the specific movie, because just to make it super, super short, because it doesn't really matter that much. But basically, the entire trilogy of, of Bergman is just leading up to a loss of faith and loss of faith in God. And the final film is virtually no mentions of him. And it's just about a, a couple of sisters in a foreign country that's slowly going to war and they're trying to get back to their home. And one of the sisters is very, very sick and dying. And the other one is trying to help her out, but she has a lot of resentment for things in the past. And the, the silence is literally just that. It's the silence of God and this complete absence from this film. And it's horrible and depressing. And then you compare that to how both Endo in the novel, but also Scorsese uses it in the film. The silence of God is actually what keeps this man going. It's, it's yeah. like he says in the end, it's, it's, it's in the silence that they found you, that they heard you the most. And it's a realization that's, that's not easy to reach. And this kind of circles back to, to what I was talking about what I don't really like about communities of christians nowadays it's just kind of like you know just people patting themselves on the back you have the occasional one who kind of acts like father father rodriguez and that's and that's one of the things that i really connected with especially the first time around when it was this movie when it came out i was like the only person in the cinema to watch it this was depressing anyway um it's the fact that i've known some people who act like him nowadays there's the opportunities to go through some christian groups at least here in italy you can go to africa you can go for like four or five months to help out and prove how good and strong you are and it's basically this kind of vacation paid by someone from the church to let these people go and enjoy being with the africans and helping them out to see how good they are and you can definitely feel them kind of, you know, my faith is reinvigorated. I'm, I'm a soldier of Christ, <laughs> which just gives me chills every time someone says that. It's just, I don't like it. I don't like it. Just goosebumps thinking about it. And, and you can see this type of behavior from uh, Father Rodriguez, a little less so from the Adam Driver father, <laughs> from, from, can actually see the actual name for guy, uh, Francisco Garupe, Father Garupe. Um, you can see that though from from uh, Andrew Garfield how his character is is having a cheese complex throughout this entire movie and book, where he's putting himself in the position of Christ, and not just him, but even the other fathers that get killed and tortured with Father Ferreira. They essentially take that you know what would Christ do? Christ would have shut up and be a martyr. That's what he did. He just let me get crucifixed and I'm fine like that. And what did the other martyrs and saints do? They're like, I'm ready to die. I'm not going to, to apostatize, apostatize, apostatize. Yes. 
I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to abandon my faith and embrace another religion. I'm just going to embrace death. That's what I'd rather do. And, and the entire film and the entire story is just framing this as technically the right thing to do. But you, because it's, you know, it's clinging on to what you believe in. But then you slowly realize, well, no, it doesn't really change anything. The only thing that changes is you're dead and that's it. And there's nothing you can do about that. Just kind of going away in a place of glory, but just for your own sake. And Father, Father Rodriguez is, is a very selfish man. And especially in the book, in the film, there's some voiceover narration, but in the book, especially since it's written entirely in first person, you see how he kind of looks down on people. And it's kind of like uh, very condescending to these Japanese villagers because oh, they, they attach themselves so much to those physical objects. And, and you know, well, that's, that's what they believe in, or right? It's like, yeah, get the rosary and just little buds here and there. If you're happy about that, good. But it's, it's, it's revealed, especially later on, when he's interacting with the, um, I don't remember the guy's name, who was a real figure, actually. Um, Inoue Masa, Masashige, played by Issei Ogata, who was basically enacting all of those persecutions, let's say. It was a real figure, actually, David in Japan actually did most of those things. And he's talking with, with Andrew Garfield, with, with Father Rodriguez, and he's basically saying, it's, it's all of this kind of your, your fault. Like, you came to us, to Japan, a country was doing just fine, everything was all right, and you force people, and people who have no knowledge of anything, no culture, you force them to basically just change name to what they're doing, which creates conflict in our country, which is going to lead to for us losing probably our country if we're attacked by other people because we're not united in any way. This is just bringing a shift into our culture, into our society that's, that's dangerous, that's harmful. And you're acting as these almighty people because your religion is the only one that counts. We don't care about that. We have our own religion. We're doing just fine before you came. And it's the fact that those people don't really, like for them, God is just whoever they're told to believe in. They don't really care. But do they, what they really believe in are those fathers, are those priests who give them hope. And that's what he says, I think, almost verbatim. is like, they're dying for you. I think Father Ferreira says that to Liam Neeson. He says, those people are dying for you. They don't care about those or whatever. They're, they believe in you primarily. And this Jesus complex that he's going through, it's ultimately what he has to abandon. That's, that's how he grows um, as a Christian, as a man. When he finally, in the end, decides to trample over the image of Christ with the lovely voice of Christ, I think it's actually Kieran Hines who voices him, um, just very warm, very comforting. He's like, go ahead, it's all right. Just trample over me. Let's get it over with. It's all right. It's, it's lovely. It's, it's a very powerful scene, especially in the use of silence as well, the way it's edited, the performances. It's great. And while you do feel the loss, it's, it was ultimately the thing to do. And yeah, it's, I don't know how we feel about this scene. I went on for a long time. <laughs> no, no, I was, I was kind of listening to because everything you said there is more or less sort of what I would have said if I could articulate those thoughts. Um, yeah, I think the, the, the whole, you know, Rodriguez is inherently a selfish man and it's sort of, way towards the end of the film when he dies years later that you realize that you know 
he has lived faithfully, but has he lived to the opportunities that he was presented by his faith? That is sort of the reading that I get from it. And it's it's hard to judge someone on even even characters in a movie on how they've acted or reacted to moments of divine intervention. And I think what Scorsese does here, especially with Karen Hines, is he presents an opportunity for the audience to sort of reflect for themselves. But at the same time, he has no qualms with answering that question for himself. I don't think that's a reflection of what he believes. I think it's just what the character would have done. And I think the, the beautiful part about that is that it's it's close enough to give the film an ending, but it's also open enough to present audiences with time to think and time to contemplate and reflect. And I, I, I think that's one of the reasons that Silence didn't do well at the box office or... I mean, it's it's very much a, a critic's film, is, is what mm -hmm. they call it these days, isn't it? It's a, it's a film that has ticked all the boxes of the people that get paid to watch them, and then for audiences that are paying to watch them, it's it's nonsense. But I think that's kind of the, the heartbreak of this, is that Scorsese had wanted to make this since 1990, and when he finally got around to making it, after delaying it so many times and paying quite a couple of millions to delay it, it was just... Uh, a bomb and I think that's there's something rather bittersweet about it that he's actually allowed to make this film because if you look at the past few decades not decades sorry past decade of Scorsese's filmmaking and how much money they've made it's it's good but it's not particularly enough to suggest that he is a director that can draw anymore like mm -hmm. he is making money on his films Wolf of Wall Street made I think it was 390 million but that was on a budget of 100 million if you're looking at box office takings now, and I know I'm way off point now, but if you're looking at box office takings now, the average draw for a big blockbuster like this is probably like 500 million. But that's inflation and everything in between mm -hmm. and stuff. And it's kind of... Silence is a bold risk mainly because who, who, who is the appeal for? Like, like we said about American Psycho and the whole comparison with Jordan Belfort, this is a character that someone can identify with and incorrectly assume as, as an anti-hero or even a hero. And that was the benefit of Shutter Island as well. I remember the big twist about that was in a sense that, you know, not is all that we perceive and everything like that. Silence doesn't have that for a, a broad audience. This is a, a film that is made as a passion project and it's a very expensive passion project. It's an incredible one, but it is very expensive as well. Um, but to get back to the stuff about Garfield, I think the, the clearest way of defining it is the the sort of difference between Garfield and Driver and the characters that they portray. Driver's character is very committed to his faith. He's ready to die for it. And it's, it's, it's a faith in a belief that I do not have for anything. And I'm kind of jealous for the people that do have that. Mm -hmm. Just that blind ability to believe something so thoroughly and to, and to sort of dedicate yourself to that for the whole of your life. It's, it's remarkable, regardless of what it is. So I, I do think that Garfield plays the more relatable character even where he, he does believe this. I have no doubts about his character's faith, but where he falls apart is that he's not willing to sacrifice his own time to that. And I, th I think that's it's, it's captured really well. And I, and I get the feeling that most audience is watching would indeed fall into that category where it's sort of they might believe this but they're not going to sacrifice themselves or a loved one or their livelihood to follow it because mm. that's mm. just not you know it's not a possibility for 99% of people 
No, even even just reading a lot of reviews from the time and even more recently, it seems that a lot of people, even those who never really who don't believe in any religion or anything, this seems to be the movie that makes them understand. It's it's how you said it beautifully. Just you you feel the passion, you feel the faith that those people have, and you kind of long for something like that, for something so blinding like blinding passion blinding love for yeah. something um that's also dangerous in a way you could say because oh, of how yeah. stubborn absolutely stubborn those people are um which is sad especially once you get to the it's not even a reveal but just how you when you understand the japanese just history of the country a little bit more and how everything that the missionaries did only brought harm to them um and here we're talking about Japan, but most likely we could say that about many other countries. There's uh, Christians persecuted in some countries in Africa, in the other countries in Asia. To this day, these smaller groups, it's it's still happening. And faith is important, but we also cannot deny that colonialism, in a way, brought those pains, brought those extra pains compared to what probably would have happened still. They probably would have found another excuse to start certain conflicts maybe but it's it's primarily a probably say negative in a certain sense yeah um just in general fucked over a lot of things for a lot of people <laughs> it, it, did, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, not a good time to be living in the world <laughs> no you're just there minding your own business and it's like what netherlands what's netherlands what's the uk <laughs> it's britain what Italy, Portugal, what? We're here like, to uh, habitat your country. Here's some tea, here's some tuberculosis. Now, fuck off. It was essentially... <laughs> Let me destroy the uh, city, sorry. <laughs> One sec. 300 years of British colonialism basically boiled down to give us your food, give us your money, and then we left. And conform, if possible. And where, where it was profitable. <laughs> where it was profitable. <laughs> There's rivers here. We like it. Oh. <laughs> I'm glad my two years of studying history, well, no, seven years, if I count the rest of it. Yeah, seven years studying history. I'm glad it's not gone to waste. Just putting it to good use. Rowan, no. But that's more because of American Psycho than history. And I haven't even watched American Psycho. Not American Psycho, American Horror Story. I'm getting confused. Everything's like named American after Psycho. American. On my shelf, I've got American Psycho, American Beauty, American Collateral, American Made. Am American, American Sniper? Amer oh. <laughs> it, there's too many American films. American um, Assassin. American Made. Well. American Made was all right. I think out of all the America based in the series. That's a fun one, yeah. Yeah. It's more fun than Silence. Yes, yes. But then I. I, there's, I get, no, there's no Tom Cruise in Silence. <laughs> I get the. Well, Tom Cruise is in American Psycho in the book. <laughs> yes, you're right, actually. He yeah. lives above Bateman, which is just. I don't get Makes it. It's extra creepy. It's so strange. But yes, I get the feeling Silence is not meant to be a fun movie. I think at the same time, though, it's not meant to challenge anyone's faith. I think it's just more there to reaffirm what people believe in. And I think it does that very nicely. I think the book does it as well. Um, both are very powerful pieces. I don't know how moving they are, but that's more of a personal thing where mm -hmm. it's like, I, I couldn't tell you what moves me in art i have no idea what it is sometimes something just clicks and it works um, yeah for me a lot, of, a lot of stories about just self-discovery usually can 
lead me to have a catharsis of sorts. And I think this one does it uh, brilliantly, but it's again, it's because of the whole history with religion and those things, but just in general, I think the only point that could be considered controversial for, for hardcore Christians, the bigots, lovely, lovely bigots, it's, it's the fact that this, I, I, I can see some of them watching this movie for the first half of it, fully embracing everything that Andrew Garfield is doing and saying like, that's what I would do. And then the movie basically tells you, that's not completely right. That's, yeah. that's not really like proper Christian behavior or just good behavior to have. Like you're, you're literally comparing yourself to Christ. Ah, I understand how you must have felt in those moments. You're like, like the Christians that cannot really, like hiding in the catacombs. Oh, he's, he's, he's so in love with this idea of just role playing as Jesus and the other martyrs that he kind of loses the whole meaning of what he's doing. And, um, and this kind of actually, this brings us to probably, well, we'll, we'll do the actual favorite characters at, at the end of the, of the episode, but just Kichichiro, wonderful, lovely Kichichiro. What a character um, in the book and the film is, he does basically the same things. In the film, he, he works as a probably purposeful, very, very low key comic relief. Um, where it's basically this Japanese Christian who keeps who keeps apostatizing whenever he's caught for with the other Christians, he's always the first one to trample or to spit on the cross or whatever. Then he's like, "Yep, you can go." He just runs away, scoots off. Then he goes back to Father Rodriguez. It's like, "Oh, forgive me, Father. I did this for my own survival, please." But it's really hard to do all those things. Like, okay, okay, I forgive you in the name of Christ, and he goes away. And then he gets captured again. <laughs> he just opposed the size and trample on the cross. And then he runs off and comes back again for forgiveness. And, and in a way, he can kind of, he's kind of the Judas equivalent in the book, in, in the film and book, apparently at first, because he's kind of a coward. And that's honestly, you know, honestly, that's probably who I would be in this situation. Like yeah, if push comes to shove and people came and attacked us and they were like you have to renounce your faith spit on the cross i'm like i'm spit is ready man just I think that's, yeah, it's, take it i'm, I'm it's calling the natural I'm reaction no i i couldn't name anyone who i know personally that would not renounce their faith if it was a life of that situation because to renounce your faith or to do anything to say something does not mean you do it you know i said i'd learn to drive and i've not done that like you, people say things that don't mean it. True, true. And it's, but at the same time, it is also understanding that the faithful find such power in saying those words that they renounce their faith. It is like I understand that mentality behind it. But for me, it's words of meaningless to me. Yeah, and and that's what makes it more more tragic. Just seeing those those Japanese men and women just strong. Like I'm willing to spit on the cross or to do anything. It's like I'm 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 proving something. What are you proving? Absolutely nothing. I'm proving that my faith is strong, but but it's not really changing anything. That's again what the what the lead of of the group, let's say, says. It's like this isn't changing anything. Like we're just gonna keep killing those people. It's because of, of you. I keep changing them and trying to make them believe in something. Um, 
and it's and it's sad because you you live with those with those people with those villagers for the first part of the of the film and the book and you get to know some of them um who again like speaking of casting is just wonderful casting for all of those for all those characters oh, and one of the standouts was Shinya Tsukamoto who people are not familiar he's, a, he's actually a Japanese filmmaker first and foremost who made the wonderful Tetsuo the Iron Man um which is a better Iron Man than Robert Dutty <laughs> but um and it's lovely just to see him here but even other character actors from Japan popping up in the cast but it's it's ah, it's all of those moments could have easily been either hyper cinematic, you could say. Like we know Scorsese is all about the style. Like you think give me shelter, you think slow-mos, you think quick cuts, excitement. In this one, it's like you said earlier, it's those wide shots and it's it's silence, there's no music, there's no excitement. And you're just you're seeing things from both from the eye of of Father Rodriguez, but also you're seeing things we could say from the eye of God. It's just distant, looking at this man die and it's nothing you can do. It's kind of like looking at them. The, the, I, I cannot even imagine. I didn't look up behind the scenes footage. I don't even know if there's much footage shot throughout this film, but I cannot imagine how they pulled off those scenes on the crucifix in the water because they, those are long takes and those feel real, really, really real. Um, yeah. It's powerful. It's it's uh, it's uncompromising, but it's never kind of going back even to what we said about American Psycho. It's never graphic. It's never gratuitous. There's barely blood or real tortures in the film. Um, they kind of I think the strongest parts are in the opening sh scene. It's like when the, we see Liam Neeson and the people in the pits just getting boiling hot water on their faces. I'm like that's just rough. Yeah, but then but everything else is more psychological, even. Yeah, it's the implication of mm. violence and persecution that really is more powerful than actually showing it. Because what, what Scorsese does and what Harren does as well in these moments is that it leaves it up the interpretation of the person watching. And the person watching has a far more vivid and specific imagination than a mm. broad scene that could appeal to everyone. The, the 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 implication there being that if you fill in the blanks yourself, you're going to think of something much more personal and terrifying to you than you are a director who has made it just for them. And I think that's it's it's a gamble, like American Psycho was in general, but it's it's one that pays off in both pieces here to mm. to actually imagine the persecution for yourself or to imagine the murders for yourself, because that's far more terrifying than just being shown it. Yeah, and you feel it like all of those yeah. things you feel them in your chest. And the, the, easily the worst one has to be the final one, which is which is the one that makes uh, Father Ferreira change his mind. <laughs> and I think anyone would change their mind after being hung upside down and getting a small cut on the neck so you don't get too much blood in your brain. <laughs> which is no. just horrible, horrible. You're just sitting in this, just standing in this pool, just blood forming under you from your neck. Uh, that's that's and then you go, you know what? I, I understand why I changed this mind. I understand why you broke in that moment, like out of everything that happened beforehand. Um and and yeah, just even like jokes aside, it's thinking that those things happened yeah. to, to a lot of people. Um it's it's rough. It's it's a lot. And uh, and it's something that I think will only get lost 
more and more conceptually the the idea of religion in my opinion i think by the end of this decade it's going to be even more of a minority or or at least a minority in the sense of just we're never going to reach those levels of, of faith probably ever yeah, again. Yeah, it's 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 on the downturn. I don't see anything specific that could really change that. Mm, mm, mm. But again, that's not a you know, if, if faith is such a personal journey, then surely the numbers of the global following of each religion shouldn't matter. As long as you yeah. yourself believe in it, then that's you know, don't worry yeah. about whatever's going on in silence. Don't don't think about that. Religion should move people to be better in life, better Precisely, to each other yeah. and to themselves. It's just that's what I've always said. I'm just kind of like very nonchalant. I have the South Park look on religion. It's like you can believe in anything you want as long as it doesn't harm others. It's like that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> go for it. Um, and yeah, and I, I I do really love the ending of this of the book as well. I think I don't want to say it's beat like verbatim, verbatim reuse the voiceover in the ending it's similar to the final letter from the dutch expeditioner yeah whatever I it's so, like yeah. i think it's a dutch expeditioner that's standing staying there in japan who's met father rodriguez who's changed his name to a japanese name he's married a, a, a widow who has children he's just living his own life now um finding christian artifacts hidden away in the ship's containers well not containers just <laughs> just bases and stuff just hidden away um, and he's lived his his whole life just yes just just as a japanese man believing inside himself inside his heart after the final day also thanks to good old kichichiro who gives him uh, a, a, a finally an understanding in a way just that's that's what christ is always good about you know forgiving everyone regardless of what they do being open and, and finding out that yes that's that's the silence that's the teacher of silence not what bergman said that the silence of god is horrible and deafening and it means that there's no hope for anything in life and we're all doomed to die alone hated by everyone it's like no 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 bergman speak more of a bit, a bit more of a beat and positive silence can also be just recognizes that his presence is the silence he's there supporting you in the silence yeah. and like you know what I like that. I really like that. And he was burned. And the wife knew. She knew that he was like that. He was like, yeah, it's fine. And she puts the cross in his coffin. A final final way to remember him for who he really was. And it's poignant. It's a very poignant way to yeah, end it's, the film. It's very powerful, yeah. Strong final image. I think it's CGI. I think it's done in CGI because it looked a bit off. Mm. No, I think it's like a camera move that goes into the vase. So it has to be CGI, yeah regardless of this technical <laughs> thing it's a good it's a good shot it's a, yeah um anyway yes any any final thoughts on on silence and its ending and just in general no i think you've you've covered everything there it's a very powerful ending for a very horrible time in history and it's it, it's it, it it doesn't test people's faith but it, it like i said before it reaffirms it almost it, it i don't see anything controversial about silence where there is controversy with the last temptation of christ i think the mm. the big switch there is that scorsese has managed to make a film that does not depend on depicting christ rather he is depicting what christ teaches yeah and it's, it's it's good stuff and i know some people um some friends that i have on letterboxd who actually had 
lost faith in a certain sense and this movie helped reignite it for them which is which is a statement and a testament to the to the power of of endo's story because it's it's still going back to him because without him we wouldn't have had this no exactly um and finally enough before we go to the final portion final section there actually is another adaptation of silence there is isn't there? yes which is nearly impossible to find it's really hard um from 1971 by masashiro shinoda um apparently it's really good so i trust people who've seen it i want to watch it i want to watch it but it's not it's not easy to get a hold of so before we go to the actual ending i'm nice my favorite segment which is favorite character and favorite scene for for book and film they can they can they can blend they can be different who knows but since we're talking about silence actually let's continue with it what would you say are your favorite characters they can be the same the favorite scenes you know i'm i think i'll just go the same for both because i think the two are so inherently close to one another Mm. it's hard to depict sort of a, a a choice for both i think the translator the actual character that sort of presents the community to these priests I think not not just because of how it's written or how it's represented on the screen by Scorsese, but sort of the impact of that character has its sort of the unity between two cultures that share the same faith. And I think there's something rather strong and rather important about that, especially in the novel, um, the film as well, though. But no, there's something about that character that I do quite enjoy. It's sort of the the realization, especially in Endo's book, where it's sort of faith is not something that is inhibited by language and it's sort of just a a trust that can be experienced by people of different backgrounds and different cultures um as far as a favorite scene goes i don't know if favorite's the right word but the uh the most fun the (laughs) most the most engaging to look at would be the uh the crucifixion scene there's something remarkably horrible about that scene it's remarkably you know I think that there's, there's a fair few films that have depicted crucifixions and there's a fair bit of like television and stuff that have depicted it. I don't think there's anywhere more sort of brutal, but not because of the action itself, but because of the comparison and the contrast between the, the beauty of the surrounding area. Mm. It's such a, a contrast that it just it feels very delicate and it's handled extremely well. Yeah, if you think of like the crucifixion in Passion of the Christ, that's that's a gory as hell, yeah. really graphic. In this one, I, they're 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 crucifix, but there's like no nails or anything. They're literally just tied to the cross. Yeah, which and they slip out like they they get so exhausted after three days of getting just standing there, they just slip out of it. Ah, just just thinking about it. Um, yes, that's that's powerful. Um, yeah. for me, honestly favorite character from the book i'd probably go for for father rodriguez because you're following him around listening to his his thoughts and how he's even processing all of these days because again he's writing them in a diary or as letters it depends from the context but he's looking back at what he's experienced with hindsight and that's more interesting than like a stream of consciousness. It's very different in the way he approaches that compared to like American Psycho. Um, well, in the film, I absolutely love Kichichiro. I think Yosuke Kobutsuka, the, the actor did a wonderful job. Um, it is needed comic relief 
very very like light comedy just just to clarify but comedy nonetheless that helps in the beginning but then he ends up being the surprising heart and soul of the movie like he's absolutely unnecessary character and and is someone that we briefly mentioned it yes we can we can identify with him just as much as with rodriguez we can understand rodriguez for his like jesus complex and we can understand kichichiro for for being an absolute coward and wanting to save his skin more than anything else despite still fully believing in in christianity um and favorite scene i probably say for the book it's the interaction between the father father rodriguez and the uh, the Inoue Masashige, the head of everything, the, of the whole attack on the Christians, because it's kind of almost taking a replace, like it's almost replicated bit for bit in the movie. Um, but in the book, it still works incredibly well. Even just how the dialogues are written in the book, it's very natural. It never feels, yeah. it's never overly poetic or overtree, overly romanticized with big words, which is very effective. Well, in the film, I think, yes, I mentioned it earlier, just the Father Rodriguez trampling officially on the on the image of Christ and the voice of Jesus speaking to him softly and warmly. Just mm. That's probably the only moment in the entire film where it becomes, where there's more of the Scorsese style that we've grown to love. It's kind of like the more cinematic, the editing and the sounds and the things. Meanwhile, everything else is, it's almost... I could almost say the film is and could be a great introduction to slow cinema because it's not yeah. necessarily a slow cinema film, but you have the long static shots. You have the yeah. wide, wide, wide shots of, of people walking and moving and things happening. So, you know, if, if, if you watch the film, so you listeners, if you watch the film and you enjoy it, give a shot to slow cinema. What's something from like Timing Young, from uh, Chantal Ackerman, from from Bellatar, even though I'm not a massive fan of Bellatar, but there's there's a lot of good stuff that you could you could watch. Bellatar's Damnation's phenomenal. I've I've not seen that one actually. Oh, it's it's beautiful. Ooh, I have to stunning. I've I've only suffered through Satan Tango. Oh, you you just went in the deep end. Yes, I've seen Satan Tango and the Turing Horse. Which oh was yeah, rough. Yeah. And the, 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 the Werkmeister harmonies, which is probably the one I enjoyed the most. Yeah. It's also the shortest out of all of them, coincidentally. <laughs> Damnation's, I think, only like two hours. It's more than manageable. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. You can watch it like three times, and Satan Tango would still be going on. Oh, I'll get around to Satan Tango at some point, but today is not the day. This is not the year to do that. There's no rush. There's some rush. I, I went because I was just kind of like, you know what? It's like a band hey, just rip it off yeah. and do it. Um, I probably rewatch it in the future. I think Bellatar will grow on me over time. Um, yeah. you know, Theo Angelopoulos, another great uh, a Greek director for slow cinema. People are interested, but enough about slow and slow movies. Let's go to more Justice League. That was slow cinema, sure, true. Uh, <laughs> Army of One or no, Army of the Dead. <laughs> Are you one? <laughs> That's just too much. That's Nick the Cage. Nicolas Cage film. <laughs> I've been on a massive Nick Cage bender recently, and that's that's not healthy for the brain. It's healthy for the soul, though. It's it's, it's really not. 
think I got rid of my copy of Army of One. Uh, which, unironically, is one of the better direct-to-video movies that he's been in. <laughs> and that's saying something. Speaking, well, speaking of Jesus, that's, that has uh, freaking what's-his-face playing God. Uh, Russell Brand. Russell Brand. Oh. Russell Brand. That's one of his finer uh, performances. Honestly, yes, it is. It, it is better than such classics as Get Him to the Greek and the remake of Arthur. I'm I'm very happy I haven't seen any of those movies. Oh, I've They're seen infamous. Of them oh. <laughs> I just know him by reputation alone. I've seen the trailer, so that counts. It's, just get it logged on Letterbox. People have watched a lot less and logged a lot more. Anyway, uh, I love him from poor Russell Brand. Oh man, if Russell like Russell nowadays, I can see Russell Brand playing Jared Leto in a remake, a British remake of American Psycho, <laughs> just getting hacked in the head. Um, why don't you tell me you and same thing? Favorite scenes, characters from the book and and film of American I've actually Psycho. Got different ones for this because I think they're they're inherently different projects so mm-hmm. i'll start with the book i think you know what the character stays the same i think patrick bateman across both texts i think it's it's difficult to have a, a favorite character that isn't patrick bateman mainly because we're seeing it from his perspective we're looking at these people as sort of like dirt mm-hmm. they're, they're awful people because he doesn't really like them and so his projection of who they are is more or less based on his opinion so we, we can't weed our way into what they really think of him or who they really are and there's so So little of them as well yeah it's they're very fleeting but Mm. at the same time they do have a presence you know people like (laughs) exactly so (laughs) silence patrick bateman's definitely the character to go to not because he's likable but because he is essentially the the voice that we listen to throughout the whole film the film and the, the book uh the book i think for me the the odd little throwaway lines it's not a scene in particular, but the stuff about the Paddy Winter show, where it's mm. like today on the Paddy Winter show, it was people talking about this or a group of talking about that. It's that throwaway line. And I feel like that line alone, it sets his tone and his attitude for the rest of that chapter, where it's like, oh, if he's sort of interested in that topic, he might be a bit lighter or, you know, and then it's as that gradual progression starts to sort of bleed into his subconscious and he starts to go a bit crazy the patty winter show also starts to get a bit more crazy and it's like a cheerio is interviewed on the patty winter show and it's like oh brilliant um as far as the film goes inevitably it is kind of it's hard to stay away from that hip to be square scene i i will stay away from it though it is one of my favorite scenes in that film i think it's marvelous not just because huey lewis is there but and not also because Jared Leto gets his head caved in, but also because of the actual performance art on display. I think one of the best scenes also is the first altercation between Kimball and Bateman mm. in his office. It's the sort of... I, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I remember reading a while ago that Willem Dafoe recorded the scene three different times. One where he believed Bateman was telling the truth, one where he was suspicious, and one where he knew he was guilty. And then Harren cropped all three of those performances together to give the nice. illusion nobody has any clue what Bateman's up to. But I think, I mean, D- Defoe is a, a scene stealer at the best of times, but his his performance in that film is absolute knockout stuff. It's absolutely brilliant. 
and and considering he's he's competing for the screen with Bateman and Christian Bale, it's it's amazing that he can hold his own, let alone steal the show from. He's he's, he's always a delight. Like I love Willem Dafoe. Oh, he's oh. phenomenal. Oh uh, yeah, and just yeah, the casting in general, like they never really mentioned who else is in the movie outside of him and Leto, but we have Josh Lucas, we have Matt Ross, we have Chloe Sevigny, Cara Seymour, Justin Theroux, and Reese Witherspoon. She, when you could have with Reese Witherspoon in the end credits, because she's she's a cameo. She's a glorified cameo in this movie. <laughs> um, but, and I love the Justin Theroux, because whenever I see him, I just think of Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, which is always a nice thing to think about. Even when watching people getting horribly murdered with yeah. an accent oh, to the face. Or when watching the girl on the train. I haven't seen that. But it was in the other, in the spy, oh, the spy was loved. Oh, yeah, that was... <laughs> I remember watching that at uni. Um, we had an hour and a half before we went to the club and we thought we needed something to set the mood for the night. Oh, and we boy. watched The Spy Who Dumped Me. We had an awful night. The Spy Who Dumped Me, yes. She... That was the one, yeah. Spider loved me as an actual <laughs> I think that's Roger Moore, isn't it? Spider yes. loved me. I was just like, no, that's 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 a fake yeah. one. I was like, no, actually, yes, that's that's one of the real ones. It sounds like a fake one, though. Let's be fair. <laughs> most most of the Roger Moore era sounds like a fake movie. Octopussy. Oh man, Moonraker. That's quality. Um, it's yeah. It's, I I agree with you. It's peaking a different actor or three different character favorite character for, for book and film it's hard not to pick Bateman um I will give a shout out for the film to to Christy the, the prostitute that he picks up because she's the again like the only one whose perspective we actually follow outside of Bateman for a very little while um and it plays into the whole just disturbing nature of of the film it's it's and the female perspective because it is, after all, directed by women, and a lot of women and feminists hated the book and called it misogynist. It's very much one of those cases where they're crit- attacking, they attacked a lot Brit Aston Hellis without actually, you know, he's writing about those things, doesn't mean he's endorsing them. It's one of those problems that keeps happening with stories like this. But I think having Heron write and direct the film and add this extra layer of depth to an otherwise throwaway character, just another number in the murders of Bateman, makes everything more interesting. Um, the favorite scene from the book, it is after, well, he's <laughs> just losing his mind, like you were describing, it's when he gets robbed at gunpoint, I think, in the, in the taxi cab at the end, because it's, the, it's finally, we're at the end of the novel, and not knowing what's going to happen, I did kind of expect maybe this would go in a different direction to the movie. Maybe there'd be some comeuppance, maybe he'll get shot, maybe something bad will happen to him because he's got recognized by this man. It's like, nope, that's, nothing's going to happen in the end. It's just going to get away, scot-free. And, and that, that's life. That's, that's how it is. Just, it's depressing. It's an incredibly depressing yeah. way to, to, to end the, the novel. Um, well, for for the film, like favorite scene, like you mentioned, there's so many, so many good ones. Everyone doing the voice great. Um, the attack, Texas Chainsaw reference at the end is great. The absolute insanity where it turns into an action movie, where you're just shooting people left and right, and there's a car exploding. 
<laughs> it's completely ridiculous. And I remember watching it with my dad, and he was like, that's just silly. It's like, yes, that's the point. <laughs> it's meant to be just absolutely batshit crazy, makes no sense. Um, but I will say, probably weird to say, likely, but the entire first scene with the prostitutes where he has the threesome, it's just so off-putting, purposefully so, because again, you're seeing it from, from their perspective of these two women getting into his apartment. And it's just weird. And he starts talking about Phil Collins and Genesis. And he just don't <laughs> care. And this feeling of inferiority, like he's, he's not just buying these women for their body, but he kind of wants to feel the satisfaction of like, are you going to ask yeah. me anything yeah. about, about my apartment? Like, nah, what you do, <laughs> we don't care. Honestly, we're just here for to to do what you want and just get it over with. The man just wants to talk about his ceramics. The poor stall. I see why he's the anti-hero now. Yes, it's like poor. Man. I've I've been in the situation where women don't ask me anything about me. <laughs> mm, okay, um, but yeah, that whole scene and uh, and funny enough, like the other times, I always watch the un uncensored cut, but I noticed that this was also streaming on Netflix. And I was curious. I'm like, oh, what's what's this version gonna be like? And this is the censored cut. And so, yeah. what's like two, three? It's like the most of the studio plays in the actual film. In this one, it's cut together, or it's just this weirdly edited scene. And it's great because it's it's just like having sex with this woman. They're actually enjoying it. Scene apparently so at least. But he's constantly looking at himself in the mirror, just flexing and making weird faces, just plays with himself and his body. Yeah, like uh I like to think the only difference between the uncensored and censored version is how long Susudio plays for. <laughs> how much Phil Collins can one person tolerate for how long of a time do we have to listen to Susudio, <laughs> which is a remarkable song, but not fitting for the scene. That's a long song. I don't want to it is. I keep for, I keep forgetting I keep mistaking it for in the air tonight, but I think this one is like six minutes long, right? Yeah, yeah, Susudio is like six minutes. I, I suppose it makes sense to play that one and not like you can't hurry love, <laughs> which is which set a different tone. Yes. Oh. Then just uh yes. That's probably my pick, but you could go for any other one. We could go for the card scene that we mentioned. You can yeah, go for uh, so many magnificent moments in that film. I love when he when he when he gets upset that the uh, gay co-worker who's not revealed to be gay. He's just got a new business card and he's so jealous he's trying to strangle him in the bathroom. And the guy's like, oh, Bateman, I've been waiting for you for so long to do this, finally. <laughs> and he just goes to clean his hands, like, disgusted. <laughs> it's like adding homophobe to the list of things. Like, nice one, Patrick. Yeah. It's, that scene is hilarious. Um, yeah. It's a lot of bleak comedy. It's like you said, it's the dark comedy. And I think that's, that's the biggest asset for this film is that it... Mm. It grapples those tones so well, and they're so not endearing, but they're just so it, uh, incredibly well-rounded. Yeah, that's, that's that's what makes it watchable. Because otherwise, if someone just took the book and tried to adapt it, it'd either be like a Charlie Kaufman heavy narration throughout type of film, or it'd be more like The Assistant, where it's just purposely boring and just big shots of nothing and him working and then you shoot the same you shoot the scenes of violence in the same style i can see that kind of working maybe yeah yeah but you know heron made went for a more poppy approach and it paid off 
paid off Absolutely. wonderfully. Which leads us to the final question. What do you prefer, book or film, for silence and American Psycho? I'm curious. It's hard to choose. It's very difficult. I think for American Psycho, I prefer the film. I'm going to go with the film for that one. Uh, for silence, I prefer the book, I think. Yeah, I'm going to... No, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the film of American Psycho, marginally better than the book. Mm. Yeah. And silence the book is better than the film. Oh no. Yeah. Is this like Sophie's choice? It's it is. And then either choice is incorrect. True. How about you? What what are you going for? I think for me, American Psycho, definitely the film, mainly because it's just more entertaining, which is a very shallow thing to say because there's so many merits for the book. But the simple act of reading the book was not particularly enjoyable. Uh, by design, I can criticize that, but I don't. I can't see myself reading the book again anytime soon. I can definitely see myself watching the film again, though. I've done that already many times. Yeah, it's probably disturbing. I probably fit in the dude bro category now. It's easier to dive that. into the film than it is to reread that book because rereading that book, you kind of have the gist of it there. You know what the descriptions of people are going to be. Mm. It's hard to appreciate that a second time round. It's not impossible, but it was kind of, it was never a chore, but at the same time, it was kind of, you, you couldn't reread that and get the same effect. Whereas with the film, there, there is a lot to unpack there. Far yeah. more than, say, there would be in just describing clothing, mm. which is the point, but it, it is a one-use purpose item. Yeah, so it's like you said, they're, very, they're two very different beasts, and they both take advantage of their medium to the fullest. One yeah. is an incredibly just purely cinematic experience, and the other is all about exploiting the, the first-person perspective to manipulate the audience in the book, where it's just, it's just um, uh, the name isn't coming. I'm saying, I want to say untrustworthy narrator, but it's not, uh, unreliable. <laughs> the yeah. untrustworthy, the unreliable narrator. Um, and I meanwhile, for silence, again, I'd probably go for the film, but it's so hard because, because the book was such a delight to read. So just just for 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 different sake, I'd probably go for the book as well, because it it really did blow me away. Um, it is actually part of one of the reasons why I was very happy to do this to do this podcast because I read this book. I want to say when the pandemic began, I was reading it. I just got it off for like two pounds. I used copy of it of the movie tie-in. So I have Liam Neeson's covered face on on, on the cover of the book. Um, and it, it came at the right time. It really did. I'd already seen the film only once, but it's it's powerful. And the fact that they're so close together, it's even harder to dif differentiate the two compared to like American Psycho, the book and the film. So, yeah. Yeah. So this is it for this episode of Best by Adaptation. Uh, let's go, you and tell us where, where the lovely listeners can find you on the social media. Uh, Lovely listeners, yes. Yeah. Um, they can find me on Twitter at Ewan Gledo. Uh, it's E W A N G L E A D O W. It's only now that I've realized my name is actually rather hard to spell. <laughs> um, you can find me on Letterboxd at Ewan Gledo also, which I just spelled, so you can skip back 10 seconds to where I just spelled it there. 
Take your time uh, to write everything down. Every <laughs> get it written down. A post-it note and a pen would be handy at this point in the discussion. Uh, you can find my work on Clapper, The Geek Show, Northern Lights, Cult Following, uh, Horrorwood. I don't even think that's the website anymore, to be honest, but it's there, <laughs> probably. I think I've got one feature on there that got published, and then the other one... Oh, nice. I, I That one did not get published because they stopped monitoring the site. So I, <laughs> I've pitched that feature to two different places, both places have accepted it, and then not published it, and now it's lost. It's like it never existed. Yeah, well, it was pretty shit to be fair so kind of glad <laughs> you can follow me on twitter at nikigra97 and the letterbox just nicolo brasso and you can watch my short films and videos on youtube and vimeo at enjoy the movies you can read some of my articles i also talk about movies and books on book for thought and of course you can read both my features and reviews and ewan's features and reviews on clapper clapperltd.co.uk you can follow us on Twitter at Death Adaptation and on Instagram as well at Death by Adaptation Pod. Be sure to tune into the other two podcasts as well. You can tune into Clappercast, where we talk about the new releases that are coming out in the cinemas, and then an Uncut Gems podcast, where we talk about movies that nobody else wants to talk about, like the good Jakub says. And uh, stay tuned for next month's episode of Death by Adaptation. We're going to discuss Jane Eyre and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Again, this is going to be a <laughs> lovely, lovely pairy that I'm really excited about. I've already read Jane Eyre. I haven't seen a single one of the adaptations. And I don't know pretty much anything about Fear and Loathing. Outside that it's a trip, a literal this is trip. my favorite book ever written. And I've got a long, lengthy story that I'm sure I'll bore you with. On I'm the next excited. Episode. And it's... I yeah. I have the book ready to go. I'm going to start it probably like tomorrow. From yeah. the time of recording. I'm going to start my reread tomorrow. But uh, the book shaped a lot of what I've done with my life so far, which probably is for the worst. But mm. <laughs> it's all good in the end, though. Well, ultimately. <laughs> <laughs> Not if silence is anything to go by. <laughs> oh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We hope to see you soon. Bye bye. I'm waving, but they can't see me. <laughs> An audible wave is what we'll get.